What a week it has been. We lost two heroes, my heroes, anyway. We lost Diane Carroll. We showed a little black girl that black folks could be on television and be beautiful to breast cancer. And we lost diva Jessie Norman to a spinal injury, only 74 years old. God bless her. Their bodies failed them and they died. But we also lost lots of people this week to violence. In New York on the weekend, five homeless men were beaten by another homeless man with a bat-sized metal rod while they were sleeping, beaten to death for no apparent reason except sport. Even though we feel a little bit of justice maybe was done as the police officer who shot Botham John was convicted and given a 10-year sentence, the man who helped convict her, the man who testified against her, was shot to death outside, outside of his car, shot in the mouth and shot in the chest. We don't know why, but it looks like some kind of retaliation. Lord have mercy. And then, last night or early this morning, nine people were shot in a nightclub in Kansas City. Four of them are dead. Five of them have been hospitalized. What in the hell is going on? That kind of violence, that kind of senseless violence just rocks our souls. We can't catch our breath. We feel so undone. And those are just the things that we know about. Those are just the things that have been reported. Those are the things on my Twitter feed. But even though it's out of the news, children are still in cages. Even though it's out of the news, they're still being warehoused. Families are still separated. The government is still making money on the backs of immigrants. They're still African-American and brown people languishing in jail because they had weed in the car with unjust sentences. There are still schools being built in the Bronx. I mean, the expectation that those students will be the future prison population. There's still a cradle-to-prison pipeline. And in the midst of all of that, there's also just people we love have passed on. And they were our soulmate. And we don't know how we're going to make it without them. It's still true that our grandmothers passed on. Our sick child is still sick. Our relationship is crumbling. Our love life is sad. Our employment is not enough to pay our bills. That craziness and then our individual sorrows and sadnesses. I've never taken LSD, but it felt like it this week when I used an inhaler to try to work on my allergies, and I was altered, could not talk because of something that went wrong in the medicine and, and the way it re reacted to my body. You, each of you, in your own spaces, with your family concerns, with your concerns about how to be close to the people that you love, all of us are 
bearing these burdens in this time and space. And so I've been feeling a little bit like Habakkuk this week, this little-known prophet. Most of us only know five or six words from his text, the righteous will live by faith. We know that because Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. But here he is, this minor prophet who, unlike other prophets, who will take on the voice of God, who will speak on behalf of God, thus says the Lord, just thus says God, and speak a word of critique and punishment or hope to God's people from God, Habakkuk takes on a different tone, a different voice. He speaks on behalf of the people, on behalf of the voiceless, on behalf of the grieving, the vulnerable, the ones who are struggling to make meaning of what is happening, what, why is it happening. And he's speaking on behalf of the of the people, he calls the righteous ones, he's speaking on behalf of the people against what he calls the wickedness. The wicked is the raza in Hebrew. He's calling the righteous ones, the, the zedekah, the children, the vulnerable, the, the ones who are trying to make ends meet, the ones who are struggling to make meaning of loss and death. He calls them the righteous, and he speaks on behalf of them and sort of takes God on and like, a, like God's on trial. How long, oh God, you heard Vanessa read so beautifully, how long, God, will you sit there and let this stuff happen? How long, God, will you be silent while the wicked hurt the vulnerable? Will the, while the unrighteous wage war, how long will you watch as time and time again my people are defeated in battle? This time by the Chaldeans. How long, God, will you sit still and do nothing? I want to just tell you now that Habakkuk is using a rhetorical device when he's yelling at God and saying, how long will you wait? Just hang on for the end of this. But he's protesting on behalf of the weak ones the twisting and bending and perversion of justice. He's protesting on behalf of the, the weak ones, the corruption that he finds inside the Judean government. So he's got a complaint about war that keeps being waged, about international politics that leaves his people, the Judean people, weak. He's got a complaint about the corrupt government that runs his people. He's got a complaint about a king named uh, Jehoiakim who who preys on the weak and, and, and has them build temples and palaces and hotels so that he can stuff his coffers. He, 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 he has a complaint about the, the unjust king who, who pays off law enforcement officials to make sure that they use violence to keep the people in place. He has a complaint about the unjust king who who solicits interference from outside entities to find dirt on his opponents. Oh, oh, this is what the text says, people. <laughs> he has a complaint about the king who traffics in lawlessness, who declares bankruptcy rather than paying his bills. He has a complaint about the king who will do anything 
wreak any violence to keep his place of power. A king who traffics in strife and contention at the hands of an unjust legal system. Judges being paid off. Supreme Court justices no longer neutral, but enacting a political agenda. I'm talking about what the text says. Habakkuk takes on the voice of the poor, the disenfranchised, the victims of marginalization and abuse. He stands on behalf of them and accuses God of being silent. How long, O oh God, will you let injustice reign? Habakkuk is wrestling with what we would call theodicy. How can a just God let an unjust world stay unjust? How can a loving God allow acts of unlovingness happen to God's people? That's Habakkuk's question. It's my question, and maybe it's your question too. We're not always feeling brave and courageous like we can put our hands on our hips and say, what's up, God? What are you doing? But Habakkuk does it on behalf of them and on behalf of us. He turns a faithful and prophetic eye not only on the international geopolitical situation of his time. He turns a prophetic and critical eye not only on the government of his people and its king. But he also turns a prophetic and critical eye on the individual suffering of the folks. He's got the on the down individual view and the big global view and is saying, God, what are you up to? And I told you to hang on because, because Habakkuk is using a rhetorical device. This is a man of profound faith. He believes that God is the God of his individual knee aches, his arthritis, and his gaining weight. He believes that God is the God of his personal relationships, that God is God over his breakups and his makeups. He believes that God is the God over loss and mourning and hope and deliverance. He believes that God is the God of his individual struggles and sorrows and the God of the unjust king and the God of the international intrigue. He believes God is God down here and up here yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so he believes the answer to the question, how long is just you wait? The text says, in answer to, to Habakkuk's God, what's wrong with you? Habakkuk stands over here and answers the question. God says back, write the vision and make it plain. You write my vision and make it plain. Make it so plain, so clear that when you write it down and you run through the streets with it, the people are going to be able to read it and know that I am God all the time. Write my vision and make it plain so that it can be so clear to people. This vision may look like it's not coming, but it is sure enough coming. It looks like it's tearing, it looks like it's late, but be patient because it is going to show up. And then Habakkuk goes on to say, the righteous one will live by faith. At a, at, a, at a simple reading, you, you, we might be thinking, okay, here's how we're going to survive the unknown. Here's how we're going to survive 
our personal problems and the problems of the world, our faith is going to save us. Our faith is going to save us. But then that actually makes it all about us. If I have enough faith, it'll be a magic wand. If I have enough faith, it'll be a shield. If I have enough faith, it'll be a cloak. It'll be a superpower. If I have enough faith, I can manage God. Then when things go askew, we did it. We did it. We didn't pray hard enough. We, and if we fix it, we did it. If it's wrong, we did it. If it's right, we did it. But actually, Habakkuk is using a word there that's anuma is the word in Hebrew. And it's not actually faith. It's more like fidelity or loyalty or steadfastness. And so he's saying the righteous one will live by the steadfastness of God. Or the righteousness will live by the faith we have in the faithfulness of God. God's faithfulness is what saves us. God is true to God's promise. God does not fail our promise. God keeps her promises. God can be counted on to comfort us when we're lost, to find us when we're missing in action, to hold us individually and our world together. And Habakkuk is saying, God will use all the things, all the things, the personal struggles, the losses, the things that leave us vulnerable, the things that make us afraid, God will use all the things to turn us toward God. God will use all of the things to make us vulnerable, to have us feel vulnerable so that we can rely on God and rely on each other. Do not think I'm saying God kills the homeless people on the street to have an impact on us. I am saying the God of Habakkuk the God, of, the God of Habakkuk's faith is the God who can turn the tragedy into something that strengthens us. That can turn the hurt into something that grows a muscle of compassion in us. The God can redeem us even when we think there is no way out of it. I don't always feel confident in that. Can I say that, professional Christian that I am? I get paid to preach faith. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and every now and then I need a reminder. I need someone to tell me. Though it looks like God's vision isn't coming. It actually is here. Residing inside of us in plain sight. Don't you know God is able? Don't you know God can feed the hungry and clothe the naked? Don't you know God is able to light the way in the darkness, to smash open the sea and take us into liberty? I need somebody to remind me. Sometimes when my head is bowed, when I don't feel confident, when I feel hurt and sad and overwhelmed, I need somebody to remind me, somebody to say that vision is real. It's here, it's now, it's happening. And to remind me what C.S. Lewis said is that God has God's unbounded now to answer our prayers. God has God's Kairos time to fix what's broken in the world. Come on, God 
is on the move, and just because we can't quantify it or qualify it doesn't mean it's not happening. I need somebody sometimes to tell me that when my body's failing me, when the grief I feel about my mom's death just kicks me once again in the gut, in the middle of like, just the most disgusting political environment that I could ever imagine, that God is still God. And I think we're called to live in between time faith. This is about eschatological hope. This is about hope that we can't taste and necessarily see today, but hope that's coming tomorrow, that's right on the horizon, that God is on the move and it's coming. We're called to in between time faith, to write the vision in between time, to testify to each other, to comfort each other, to remind each other, to hold each other, to hold up the vision when the other one can't see it. In the first worship, Carol, where's Bicky? I said I wasn't going to say her name. I'm sorry, Carol. Um, a woman who goes to church here <laughs> told me a story about how at work she's watching a film that's about sexual boundaries. You know, those films you watch to make sure you're going to be okay. And embedded in the film is racism and sexism. And she could see it. Like, she could see it in plain sight because she knows the vision God has. You see what I'm saying? Ruby Sales can only be my mentor because she wasn't lynched by a white man who tried to kill her and another white man jumped in the way of the bullets. Ruby Sales has the ability, the, 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 the right, she has the right to hate white people. And she does not. She says the love we're called to, the redemptive relationship we're called to, the vision that God has before us is to see even our enemies as better than they see themselves. Do you know what I'm saying? I think we're called to write the vision in the in-between times. And that might be praying fervently. That might be heading down to Washington, D.C. to remind SCOTUS of its real job. That might be mentoring a kid. That might be taking care of each other when we're sad. But we're called to in-between time faith. To faith in the faithfulness of the God who created us, who loves us just exactly as we are. No matter who we love, no matter how we look, that God is on the move. That God will not fail us. She will show up. And when you're unsure, I'll try to remind you. And when I'm unsure, please hold my hand and say a prayer. Amen.